Judic Fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is of the Father we read that. All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. And him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast up. But we are concerned at the moment more especially with the application of redemption as traceable to Christ himself. Now last Sabbath morning we have referred to the order in which these offices are executed and the order in which they are made known to um, the people of God. They are executed in the order in which we have mentioned them. Prophet, priest, and king. It is in exercising his office as a prophet that he reveals himself as priest. And it is as priest he reveals himself as king. But in the order of their manifestation to the soul, it is the office of the priest that is first made known. And only in this office is there rest or encouragement, or peace for a sinner. We should, even if I were to know Christ as prophet, there could be no rest, there could be no peace in that for my conscience. For the conscience that is awakened and taught of the Spirit of God must have a resting place and must have a resting place on which God's approval is set and this resting place is none other than Jesus and Jesus as he executes the office of a priest what can we get Nothing but a sacrifice. <laughs> what can cleanse an accusing conscience? Nothing but the blood of atonement. And as sacrifice and as cleansing the conscience in the blood of atonement, Jesus appears as priest. Hence we say that the priestly office is the basic office which he executes. Were it not for the priestly office, there would be nothing to reveal that could bring salvation to a sinner. Were it not for the priestly office, there would be no subjection of the will of a sinner to him. Hence, he is called to the office of a priest, not without an oath. And it is only of the priestly office we read that he is made a priest forever, made a priest with an oath after the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priests were not called to their office by an oath. They entered upon it more or less as their right of heredity. 
they were sons of Levi and they automatically became eligible for the office of the priesthood they entered into it but here the scriptures brought up he was not made a priest like the Levitical priests for it differed in this that he is made a priest by a law of the Lord's way and will not repent thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so in revealing himself as Savior in bringing peace to the conscience in subduing man to himself he appears as the priest the priest called to his office inaugurated by the word of the oath of Jehovah and it is because of this oath that sinners can have strong consolation Sinners who flee from heaven unto the hope set before them. Now, <clears throat> in applying the salvation, he executes the office of a prophet. And what does it mean? He reveals first of all that there is such thing as sin for it is from sin he came to save his people and the first step of his dealings with them by way of applying the salvation is to convince them that they are sinners he came to save them from their sin not from imaginary sin but from real sin, from their sin. And in order to appreciate his salvation, they must be made conscious, more or less, of the fact that they need salvation from sin. And to make them appreciate that fact, they must come to know that they have sins from which, from which need to be saved. But do they not know that all the time? By no means. And as to the actual experience of this we can turn not only to an account of it but to an inspired account of it and that is what we read this morning an account of what happens when Christ executing the office of a prophet convinces the soul of sin I say not only have we an account of this, but we have an inspired account of it. What's the difference? Well, any man who has been through the experience which the apostle describes can give an account of it. But then his account of it may not be accurate. He may misinterpret even his own experience. A man can do that and often does. He misinterprets his own experience. He doesn't read these experiences aright. But when we have an inspired account of it, as we have 
in the case of the apostle, then there's no possibility of mistake. Not only is he describing something which he knows, but he's describing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that we need not be afraid that the apostle misinterprets his own experience, because the account of it, as well as the experience itself, is through the Spirit, and through the Spirit in such a way as that there can be no possibility of mistake. Now this is how he begins. I was alive without the law once. Now that is an amazing statement. When was the apostle alive without the law? Was he not a Pharisee? Was not his work to study the law? And was he not, as he himself says, according to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless? Surely, this man was never alive without the law. But that is exactly what he himself says. I was alive without the law once. Not of course that he was without the law in one sense. Not but that he drew all his encouragement from the procuring of God's favor from his own observance of the law. Not but that he studied it day and night, but yet he says, I was alive without the law once. <laughs> and when did he come to know this? And it is on the matter of consciousness that the emphasis is laid in this whole account. When did he know that he was alive without the law? Not until the law came, or the commandment came, as he could say. When the commandment came, Now that is important from various viewpoints. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say when I came to the commandment. That's what he had been doing all his life. He was coming to the commandment. He was studying the commandment. He was framing his life as he thought according to the commandment. But all the time he was alive without the law. But now something else happened. Instead of his coming to the commandment, the commandment came to him. The commandment came. It came from somewhere, to somewhere. It came, that's what he was conscious of, and it came to him, it came in a new way, it came into his consciousness, it penetrated the surface, it worked in the inner recesses of his being, it came. It came without being invited, and it refused to go away. It came on its own authority, or rather on the authority of him who sent it. And it was not to be turned aside. It was not to be ordered out of doors. 
it came to take up his abode in his consciousness. And to rule there, it didn't come as a servant, it came as a master. It didn't come to be told what it should do, it came to tell what should be done. And what happened when the commandment came? Sin revived. It doesn't say when the commandment came it was so powerful and had the effect of turning sin out of doors. The very reverse happened. The sin that was dormant, inert and inactive, no sprang to life. And what condition is this man in? What is he understanding now? Well, in a word, he is understanding now what he is. That he is a sinner. For the commandment that came revealed sin. But not only that, but it irritated sin and brought it into action. But not only that, it came to show that the sinfulness of sin consists in working death by that which is good. Now if you were to ask this man <clears throat> how you found peace, no, he, he would have said, I have lost the peace I had. For when I was alive without the law, I had peace. But it was the peace of death. Now my peace has been taken away. Now I have no peace. And if you were to ask him, are you better than you were? He would have answered, no, but I never knew what it was before to be really bad. To be bad as judged by the law. And if you were to ask him, are you getting better? His answer would have been an immediate ne negative. No, but I am getting worse. And it's not that I think that I'm getting worse. But I am. The more the commandment enters, the more sin is irritated. And the more I realize the power of that sin, not only its presence, but it's power working death in me by the very commandment which is itself holy, just, and good. Sin revived. Now he gets to realize that he needs salvation from sin. From this sin that seems to be getting more Powerful. That seems to be getting, to be increasing in him, and that which he had not suspected of himself, he now finds to be true of him. For notice, he not only tells us that the commandment came, but he tells us which commandment especially to hold. Not only that, a commandment, but a special one. What was that? Thou shalt not covet. Now I take it that this is the last sin of which Saul of Tarsus would have suspected himself. This is the last sin with, with which he would accuse himself. 
But it is as covetous as which the commandment brought to light. I had not known it, he said, except the commandment had said, Thou shalt not covet. And what was he coveting? He was coveting whatever is in that covet. Glory for himself. And glory for himself in his own salvation. Now he saw that everything he had been doing, the things in which he had been so diligent and conscientious, were but from the spirit of covetousness. He coveted this. He wanted this glory to himself. The glory of his own salvation. And the commandment forever took away. Deprived him of this. The thing thou shalt not covet. I hadn't known it. I would never have dreamed of it, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now then, if he finds himself guilty of that of which he never suspected himself guilty before, it means that in every other point he finds himself guilty. The law came, sin, sin revived. Not this sin or that sin as such, but sin in general. Sin revived. It came to life. And I died. I died to the peace I had before. I died to the idea, the notion, the conception. I had of salvation before. Now this death is a painful one. People don't die easily in this respect. And this is a process <coughs> that goes on. This dying. It is oftentimes a slow death. It might be immediate, but it is usually a slow death. The man died. And died because sin is reviving. And reviving through the commandment. Here he is. The more he does, the more he realizes his impotence. The more he tries, the more he understands his helplessness. But try he will. And he goes on trying. And goes on trying to gain life by the He tries, as someone has put it, to climb to the top of Sinai. And that is as steep as saying. That is what one hasn't been able to do yet, for the mountain shakes, is covered with darkness and blackness. Sin revived. I died. Sin. Now here is a work being done to prepare the way for the manifestation of the Saviour from. Now here is a work being done to prepare the way for the manifestation of the Saviour from sin. It is what the Puritans used to call the preparatory work of the Spirit 
which is a legal work, a work done by the law, preparing the soul for the manifestation of God's salvation, which is not of the law, but which is of faith. Now in this predicament, Christ working as a prophet by his word and spirit, but never revealing himself, always in the background, bringing the things into the consciousness of the soul, bringing the truth to his understanding, making him to realize that he needs salvation. But where is salvation? That is the question. Where can salvation come from? That is the question. Jesus. Now thus prepared the Lord in his mercy reveals himself. That is, enlightens the mind in the knowledge of his priesthood. He is a priest. And what does he do as a priest? He offered up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. He brings the soul to understand something of the meaning of the sacrifice once offered up. And then the soul calls his name Jesus. This is the discovery the greatest discovery that a soul can make. It is not a discovery made through effort. It is through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, enlightening the mind in the knowledge of Christ. Christ as a priest. Offering up himself. taking the sins of his people in himself, in his body, to the tree. Through the eternal spirit, offering his life himself, a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling odor. To whom? First to God. The door the guilty soul as well. This is a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling odor. This is life. It is life in his death. It is uh, <clears throat> hope in the darkness in which, into which he entered. It is everything in short flowing from the cross the altar on which he offered himself. Here is salvation. He shall save. It is from this altar he speaks, saying, Thy sins are forgiven thee. The question of sin is settled. The question of sins given. Sin. He shall save his people from their sins. And this is something done within them. It is the application of salvation by the Spirit. It is the enlightening of the mind in the knowledge of Christ. 
It is to this the Apostle refers again in another place when he says, God forbid that I should glory. Said in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. God forbid that I should glory. God forbid that I should covet this glory that belongs to Jesus Christ and to him only. This then is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the application of his salvation by the Spirit. This is the enlightening of the mind which is saving which is itself the seal of the Spirit. The seal that the Spirit puts upon the soul, making that soul his own forevermore. And that seal is not different from the manifestation of the cross of Christ. He shall say, Oh, what a marvelous way of salvation. He saves from death by dying. He saves from guilt by taking guilt upon himself. Now here we have the light breaking out on the soul that was in darkness. And it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He shall say, and he saves immediately. He saves from the wrath which is to come. He saves from the hardness of heart which keeps the soul in bondage. He enables the soul to pour out its heart unto God, to pour out its heart viewing the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Here is life. Here is salvation. Here is liberty. Here is repentance indeed. Here is everything that God requires. Here is everything that the soul can decide. He says. But in another sense, this is but the beginning of recovery. <clears throat> a Boston refers to it as begun recovery. There's a lot to be done yet. But this is the beginning. The beginning of recovering the soul. Recovering it from any state of sin and misery. To bring it into a state of glory. It has already passed into a state of salvation. But that is not the aim. The aim is to bring the soul to a state of glory. By a redeemer. No things have begun. The soul may say, like Moses, now hast thou begun to show thy works to thy servant. And it is but the beginning. And it is the beginning of great things. He goes on teaching. He goes on revealing. He goes on sanctifying and preparing that soul for the house of many mansions, preparing it for the place prepared for, prepared for it before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> he goes to, he went to prepare a place for a prepared people, and it is he who does the preparing. He is fashioning them for the position they are to occupy in the spiritual temple. He is fashioning them 
in his own image. He is urging them to present them before the Father, a glorious church, without spot or blemish or any such thing. He, he shall save his people from their sins, from their sins. Now in, in doing this, <clears throat> as we all mentioned before, he saves them not only in the sense of forgiving their, their guilt, but he saves them away from them. There are the two prepositions used, as we already said. He saves them out of their sins and away from their sins. And that is what we have in the question, what is sanctification? It is a renewing of the soul in the image of God whereby the soul is enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Now there is nothing on which the soul needs such teaching as on this. What is it to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness? There is nothing so misunderstood as that. I know that. I, I could say that the way in which all people understand that is this. To die and to sin and to live unto righteousness means to, to get better and more sanctified and by more sanctified get away from sin more and more every day. Well, if that is what it means, we know absolutely nothing about it. If that is what it means, it means to get consciously better and better until the soul is able to say, now I have conquered everything. If that is what it means, we know not the first thing about it. But what does it mean? Well, all you have to do is to read again that seventh of Romans. And there you will see what it means. The good that I would, I do not. I'm getting more conscious of that every day. That is what it means to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Certainly not to die to the consciousness of it, but to grow the consciousness of it. Day after day, that which I would, I do not. And the more I try, the more I realize how sin, how sin has bled me white of all spiritual energy. The more I try it, the more I realize how important I am. And what then? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ the Lord. That's sanctification. That's growing in the knowledge of righteousness. That's living unto righteousness, living unto Jesus in one's utter helplessness, resting upon him more and more for salvation day after day, realizing that in oneself there is no good thing. So instead of getting better and better, until one wishes for more worlds to conquer, the reverse is the case consciously considered. A disease that is loathsome fills my loins with pain. Now, what do you say? Isn't there such a thing as the victory of the spirit? Oh, there is. But it is not the victory over the consciousness of sin. That is not of the spirit. That is of the spirit of folly. And there's lots of it in the world today, yes, and yesterday too. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, there are no qualifications there at all. And the truth is not in us. If we say it, it's not if they say it. 
but in reason. And if we are on the way to saying it, if we are getting there, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is if we are getting there in our consciousness of things. The growth of the believer is a growth downwards. It is fruit downward, but he may be fruit upward. And what is the fruit? He has none. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace. But it is not the love of oneself. It is not the joy in oneself. It is not peace with oneself. It is love, joy, and peace in relation to God. It is the peace of pardon. It is the love begotten by the knowledge that he first loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith, the faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's the victory. Christ is the victory. This is the victory which overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith in him. Our reliance upon him. And then again the question may be asked. What about the infilling of the Spirit? What about the... being um, so energized by the Spirit as to rise above all these things. <clears throat> what about it? In the first place, the Spirit has no victory but the victory of Christ. The Spirit has nothing to apply but the redemption purchased by Christ. And the redemption purchased by Christ consists in Christ himself. Now, supposing I rely on the Spirit apart from Christ. Supposing I can say, no, I can't do this in the Spirit. Now, if I try to rely on the Spirit apart from Christ, I have deviated from the scripture whom I have gone astray. For the Spirit never draws attention to himself. He always draws the attention of the soul to Christ. He reveals Christ in Christ's fullness. He reveals Jesus as the one who saves from sin, not only from its guilt, but also from its power, but it is in his way and not in ours. Now then, to be made a partaker of the victory which is Christ's, is to be directly to Christ and to rest upon Christ, and not upon the Spirit, but upon Christ, but to rest upon Christ directed thereto and instructed by the Spirit. There is no such thing as a testimony of the Spirit to the Spirit himself in the soul. It is always to Christ. He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you, so that in my impotence as I am of myself, as the Apostle says, in me there dwelleth no good thing, no good thing, what then? Oh, there is Christ. There is a Savior. There is one whose name is Jesus. And it is he, and he only, who saves his people from their sins. Thou shalt call. Now we can apply this in one word. Hast thou called his name Jesus? Everyone who has known him, 
has concurred with the Father and the Spirit in this. They call his name Jesus. Jesus. There is a Savior, the help of God. Hast thou called him Jesus? And how hast thou been enabled by the Spirit to go further and say not only that he is Jesus in himself, but he is Jesus the Beloved. Oh, to be able to say, My Beloved is mine, and I am his, Jesus, the only Redeemer, the only Saviour, and he saves from sin. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, may thy blessing be upon us. <clears throat> may the name of Jesus be precious unto us. May he be our Savior. May we know him as such and rejoice in him as such. May he be our prophet, our priest, and our king. Do thou undertake for us and take away our sins for his name's sake. Amen. Number 20, the 20th Psalm from verse 5. Psalm 2, at the 5th verse. In thy salvation we will draw. In our God's name we will display our banners. And the Lord thy prayers all fulfill. Now know I God his king doth say. He from his holy heaven will hear it with the saving strength by his right hand given. In chariot some put confidence, some harshest trust upon, but we remember will the name of our Lord God alone. We rise and upright stand when they are bowed down and fall. Deliver Lord and let the King us hear when we do call. These verses of Psalm 20 from verse 5, in thy salvation we will draw.